Zachary Bartel is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard Hotspur. And the 2015 Carol Award for Debut Novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. As promised a couple weeks ago, I now bring you a little more of the Gut Check Guide to Publishing by Zachary Bartles and Ted Cluck with Cliff Graham, Church Curmudgeon, Aaron Bartles, Frank Turk, and the one and only and imaginary Chaz Marriott. This chapter is called Punk Rock Publishing, When and Why to Go Indie. It all started with a t-shirt. I, Ted, have this great t-shirt with the Sub Pop record label logo on it, which I actually bought as an homage to the one that the John Cusack character wore in the modern classic High Fidelity, and also because I like some Sub Pop bands. The other cool thing about Sub Pop, which kind of went against the music industry grain at the time, was the idea that they started a label, brand, if you will, and created loyalty for their brand rather than the individual bands. It also didn't hurt that they signed a pre-fame Nirvana. So people were buying sub-pop records because they were sub-pop records, instead of for what was actually on the records. Same thing happened, uh, by the way, later on with Tooth & Nail Records. Now, don't get me wrong, some of the records were great, but the point is that people identified with the ethos and vibe of the company. That's what we endeavored to do when we created Gut Check Press. We had a vibe and an attitude and figured that books would follow, and they did. So it all started with a t-shirt? Not really. It actually all started with years of pent-up disillusionment at the time towards some aspects of traditional publishing. And then a real great friendship, and then the idea that we had all of these ideas that didn't fit traditional publishing paradigms, but that people may actually want to read. Also, we really wanted to make our own t-shirts. Note, we did, and they are awesome. I would add an additional note slash update that now we have a t-shirt you can buy designed by the great Peter Voth. You should go right now to www.missionalwear.com, search for Gut Check Army, and buy that t-shirt. Buy 10 of them. Yeah, buy 20. Back to the book. We went indie because, simply, we had products in mind that traditional publishing houses weren't offering. We also gambled that those products may have an audience. Maybe not an enormous mainstream audience, but an audience nonetheless, and enough of an audience to make us profitable and keep us in cigars and steaks for the foreseeable future. We also went indie because there were certain ways that we wanted to say things, funny ways, primarily. (laughs) I love the way that Ted uses his words. We had certain ways we wanted to say things, funny ways, primarily, and traditional publishing wasn't letting us say those things in that way. 
Zach tells me he likes to play a game called Find the Phrases That Aren't Ted's when reading my traditionally published books. He underlines the changes obviously made by editors that don't sound at all like me. With Gut Check, we could say what we wanted, how we wanted it, on exactly our own time frame. Because of the magic of POD technology, we could have an idea, knock it out, and actually be holding a copy of the product in a matter of weeks, as opposed to a traditional publisher where idea to product actually takes, no joke, around a year and a half. Another added bonus was that having a company together sort of solidified the friendship in interesting ways. There were planning dinners, retreats with our wives, and conferences, which is all just a really fancy way of saying that we hung out a lot and laughed, and the thing that sort of made it all hang together was the company. And soon, what started out as kind of a joke became a thing that was paying for those dinners and generating some real income. And the best part is, it was all fun and no drudgery. Some things you never have to worry about when you publish a book independently or start your own publishing company. 1. Waiting forever for editors and traditional houses to respond to book proposals. One of the realities of traditional publishing is that to even get to write a book in that space, you are required to write a 15-20 to page proposal along with a sample chapter or two. These are the documents that you'll use to query agents, and then after you sign with an agent, he or she will probably change a bunch of stuff in it before you can even pitch it to a publisher. Because it, no surprise, doesn't conform to that particular agency's template. You and the agent will go back and forth half a dozen times, finally landing on an acceptable book prop just when one of the big conference seasons begins, taking your agent and most of the industry out of play for a good four to six weeks, after which you'll make the pitch and then wait a super long time. By contrast, the indie model of pitching, followed by gut check, looks like this. Maybe we should write, like, a guide to cigars and pipes for Christian men. Baby, that would be money. 2. Opening the initial email from your editor with all of his or her issues with your manuscript. As any veteran writer will tell you, this is the worst day in the life of an author. Now, there are authors out there, and you've probably heard them speaking at writers' conferences, who say that they love and value input from editors. That may be true to some degree, but to a much larger degree, they are lying. Writers write stuff the way they want it the first time and hate having it messed with by editors, even though we're all required to say that we value it. More about that editor. I had a guy one time at a pretty big imprint of an even bigger New York publishing conglomerate who wrote his own eight-page essay about things that, quote, weren't working in my manuscript submission, which he emailed in addition to the standard tracked changes marked up manuscript, which was marked up more than any I'd ever submitted in my, at that time, pretty long and pretty successful career. Needless to say, I wanted to punch this, <laughs> I wanted to punch this guy in his smug face. Uh, trust me, you do not want Ted Cluck to want to punch you in the face. He's a big hombre. Instead, it took me three full days of prayer and wisdom seeking to come up with the maturity necessary to reply with something like, I really appreciate your thoughts here, and we'll be making these changes soon. It still kills me to type that. The point being, if you publish on your own, you can avoid all of this. Implicit in that anecdote, though, is the fact that sometimes the Lord can use these bad editor situations to sanctify us, which is a good thing. 3. A Crappy Cover Some of my traditionally published covers have been famously awful. 
one of which, ironically, for my most successful book, has been known to cause seizures due to the combination of a bad font and tricolor scheme reminiscent of the Bob Marley blanket that resides in the college apartments of guys who smoke too much weed. Another time, an editor thought he was being super creative when he suggested that we basically rip off the cover design for another similar title that had previously done well. That particular book, mine, was a critical success, and literally the only public critique of it was the fact that its cover looked like somebody else's. I think it's safe to say that over half of my traditionally published covers were rip-offs of other cover designs. Footnote. The natural tendency of traditional publishers to go with safe knockoff designs, even while publicly seeking the next ultra-creative and unique idea, is sadly compounded by Christian pop culture's tendency to steal and co-op successful secular slogans, logos, etc. See a breadcrumb and fish or Lord's Gym t-shirts. You can't see me right now, but I just spit on the ground as I typed that. It just seemed the thing to do. It goes without saying, but indie publishers have total control over the cover design process. Don't get me wrong, this doesn't stop 90% or more of indie covers from being horrendous, but that's a topic we'll address later. For now, the point stands. You have total creative control over the design when you go indie. 4. A Diluted Brand One of us was recently afforded the opportunity to do a little Q&A at a publisher event near the mecca of Christian publishing. That was awesome. What wasn't awesome was seeing huge shrines to this publisher's two biggest books at the moment and realizing these were two of the most theologically offensive books out there, then realizing that all the authors doing said Q&A would be promoting their books from directly beneath those two shrines. With indie publishing, you control exactly how you come off as an author and as a publisher. Now, there are downsides to that as well, like perhaps the complete lack of a marketing budget, but still. 5. Long-standing traditional publishing paradigms Simply stated, the industry has long-held opinions on what kinds of books, quote, work, meaning, quote, sell, and they're usually right. Still, that could mean death to your slightly different proposal, and it could be that your offbeat idea has enough juice, and enough of a potential audience to make it profitable to do as an indie project. 6. Signing away your rights to your work It always cracks me up when authors make a big deal about, quote, keeping their copyright. I think what they mean is that they want to make sure it says copyright their name on the copyright page, as if that makes any difference. Newsflash. If you get a check from a publisher, they're buying the rights to your book. What did you think they were paying for? That check was for the rights to your book. And if and when you earn out your advance, they'll send you roughly a dollar a book thereafter. That's the deal. Anyway, in addition to that, most author contracts sign away the majority of the subsidiary rights. For example, film, audiobook, large print, foreign language translations, etc. This means the publisher can sell those rights to other companies, pay you a small one-time fee, and then those other companies keep all the profits from sales of those editions. And remember, your agent gets 15% of even those small one-time fees. 7. A tiny piece of the sales pie. So the thing with traditional publishing is that they make an upfront investment in a project, more on that below, which includes an author advance, marketing budget, editorial, and the cost to print slash bind slash ship slash store X numbers of copies. 
As such, your cut, or royalty percentage, as an author is relatively small after everyone in the office of Traditional Publisher, Inc. has had their salary, benefits, and conference travel paid for. One of the real pluses to indie publishing is that you keep a much higher percentage of book royalties, and you start getting them immediately. Granted, you haven't gotten an advance, but that just gives you all the more incentive to get out there and move as many copies of your book as possible. Footnote. That's fun to write in that it feels like an inspirational locker room speech from a sports movie, but the fact is that Gut Check never, quote, gets out there and moves product. And yet, we've sold quite a few books. So, ready to dive into indie publishing? You should do what we did, which is smoke a bunch of cigars and design some t-shirts, then get writing. All right, I'm going to skip the chapter called Put Down the Champagne and Act Like You've Been Here Before, Why You Should Slow Down and Spend a Little Money, The Ballad of Chaz Marriott, Abject Failures, Smoking for Men, Soaring Successes, and a number of other chapters that you should probably read when you buy a copy of this book. But I do want to read you the last chapter in this first half of the book about indie publishing. In case you don't buy the book, this is valuable stuff to hear, I think. So this one's called Gut Check Your Goals. You sure about this? Before we move on to the traditional publishing section, we want to encourage you to check your goals. We know some people will only read the indie part, and we want to stop you, if possible, from charging down that road for the wrong reasons or toward the wrong goal. To that end, we present six stupid reasons to go indie. One, you don't think an editor would make your book any better. It's perfect as it is, since you picked every word so very carefully and then put them all in exactly the right order. And if anyone were to mess with that, they could only make your book worse. 2. You sent out 4, or 8, or 40 query letters to agents and or a stack of manuscripts to publishers and did not get an offer. Footnote. Zach's wife, Erin, is a better writer than you, and she sent out 175 query letters over the course of three and a half years before landing an agent at a major literary agency. More about this in an upcoming chapter. We know you've heard the stories of how many rejections famous authors received before they found success, so why should you think you'll be any different? 3. Everything publishers do looks easy. You can slap together a cover using stock photos in Photoshop. You can edit your work yourself, and your friends can proofread it for free. In fact, you're convinced there's no real reason for publishers to exist, except that they always have. 4. You've heard about a bunch of books that were originally self-published and became huge cash cows for their authors. For example, What Color Is Your Parachute, The Celestine Prophecy, Fifty Shades of Grey, The Shack, etc. And you're sure your stuff is better than that. 5. You don't feel like reading up on the proper way to query an agent or write a book proposal and you're way too cheap to pick up the latest edition of the writer's market or too lazy to go to the library. 6. You're just impatient and impetuous, and you're totally going to regret this soon. Let's address the issue of indie as shortcut to the top first. It's not one. Publishing quality indie work can help you build towards something bigger, but you're about as likely to rocket to superstardom based on your self-published masterpiece as someone who sings loudly every time she gasses up is likely to become the next Tony Braxton. You know, because she was discovered by an agent while singing to herself at a gas pump. Aside, we love Ms. Braxton because she's awesome and she's a beautiful woman who smokes cigars, which is too rare a thing. And don't believe most of what you hear along these lines anyway. 
Riddle me this. What do John Grisham, Tom Clancy, Jack Canfield, that's the chicken soup guy, and Stephen King all have in common? They didn't start out by self-publishing their first books, and yet their names are continually invoked by people building up false hope among aspiring authors, trying to paint indie as this maligned, lied-about, secret passageway to wild success. They're not helping anyone. Sure, there are occasional titles that do make the leap from self-published to bestseller, see number four above, but one, the odds of this happening to you are about the same as the odds of winning the Powerball, and two... Have a look at those titles again. In fact, let's roll that back. For example, What Color Is Your Parachute? The Celestine Prophecy, Fifty Shades of Grey, The Shack, etc. It's clear that the quality of the book is not the deciding factor. If you're looking to play a mega long shot, it's quicker and easier to just buy the Powerball ticket. Those are the stupid reasons. What are yours? Only you know what you're hoping to accomplish, but if you're really going to do this, start small and be happy with small steps forward. By the way, that is wisdom I wish I had embraced with my traditional publishing career. For Gut Check, even with our biggest successes to date, resulting in national radio programs covering us, book events across the state and even across the country, and knockoff books appearing in our wake, we're still talking about thousands of units, not hundreds of thousands. So, yeah. Take a moment to check your goals. With very few exceptions, indie is not something you jump into if you're looking to make a living at it, unless it's a stepping stone to something larger. But if you're looking to supplement your writing career with something fun, laugh with friends, go to baseball games on the company's dime, enjoy fine cigars and steaks, or start that 65 Mustang fund, if you have niche books that will connect with a base of readers in this moment and bring them back for more, If you want to have meaningful interactions with people who read your words and you want to know that they're all your words, if total creative control is more important to you than distribution and the ordinary marks of success, if you want to publish things that would never pass the feasibility study, this just might be for you. And ultimately, if you set realistic goals, try your hand, and then spectacularly crash and burn, thanks to POD and the digital marketplace, you're not even out all that much. We're closing in on the home stretch of season one of the Clinch podcast, uh, so I may or may not get into uh, some of the chapters in the traditional publishing section. In the meantime, I do still have people I want to catch up with. Ted Clock, Cliff Graham, who is currently hunting predators somewhere in Central America or the Middle East. Uh, I'll, I'll get a hold of him on satellite phone at some point. My wife, Erin, who works on both sides of all of this stuff, and uh, maybe one other. So we'll see what these last few episodes hold for the Clinch podcast. In the meantime, let's get back to Judith and Trent, now in police custody in the little town of Clinch Rock. Clinch, a novel. Chapter 27. Trent and Judith were up against the wall, literally, palms flat against it at Terrell's orders. Feet shoulder-width apart, he barked, coming up behind Trent, gun looming just out of sight. Trent felt a jerk to his backpack and then heard the clatter of a dozen arrows tossed across the room, rolling along the floor. You know we got your old man in lockup, he said. Try anything dumb and he's gonna hang himself right in the cell. 
He laughed. Silly me. I forgot to take his belt when I booked him. Connor Dupree appeared in the doorway, apparently winded from descending the stairs. You called? Yeah, the cop said. Draw your piece and stand by while I disarm these delinquents. Not taking any chances this time. You got it. The tattoo artist pulled out a fat revolver with a comically long barrel. Terrell stepped over to Judith, leering menacingly. So you're the one who destroyed my boat, he said. That's going to cost you. You should have heard it, Judith deadpanned. It begged for its life, right up until it went under. Then it was just like, glub, glub, glub. Real funny. He holstered his weapon. Take off those gloves, one at a time. Judith rolled her eyes. One at a time, as opposed to... She removed the long, silky gloves and flung them in Terrell's face. Now the belt, he said. Drop it to the floor and kick it over to me. She complied. Good. Now grab Wall again. I'm going to pat you down. You're not laying a finger on me, Judith declared. I know my rights. I demand a female officer search me. You think I won't call one? We got two lady cops. He picked up the elaborate belt and turned it over twice. Judith shrugged. So get one of them over here. I give the orders, he said, popping open the widest compartment on her belt and pulling out her phone, which he examined for a moment and then pocketed. From the next pouch, he withdrew a large folding knife. He tapped it against her shoulder and said, Carrying a concealed weapon. You're going to be popular in juvie. I understand they're real nice to weirdos down there. That's not mine, Judith said. Doesn't matter. Oh, I think it does. Look at the initials. What the heck? Terrell grabbed her by the wig and wrapped the knife, still closed, against her forehead. This is Chief Barton's knife. Where'd you get it? She smiled. You've got our chief. We got yours. How about a trade? Yeah, right. Look at you, Terrell said. You lost touch with reality. What are you supposed to be? I'm supposed to be the one who knows where we locked up Rich Barton. Haven't heard from him in a while, have you? Terrell was silent for a moment, mulling it over. I don't care, he said. The chief's a big boy. He can handle himself. Then he pulled a flip phone from his back pocket and dialed a number. Who are you calling? She asked. Shut your mouth. He waited a few rings, cursed, and hung up. Where is he? He demanded. He's chained to a tree in the National Forest, Trent blurted. Not too far from the lakeshore. I can show you. Judith glared at him. What are you doing? They've got my dad! Terrell was dialing again. He pressed the phone to his ear and said, John, it's me. You heard from Barton lately? His brow slowly descended as he listened. Judy Bug, you say? Mm-hmm. I got her in custody, along with a kid, at Marsh's house. She's got the chief's pocket knife on her, says they chained him to a tree. He listened again for a few seconds and answered, Yeah, Taylor's not picking up either. Judith laughed. <laughs> it's nine o'clock. Do you know where your henchmen are? Without breaking off the conversation, Terrell drove a fist into Judith's kidney. She went down to one knee, but didn't cry out. Trent tried to shout in protest, but he was paralyzed. The hand cannon pointed in his direction, the news that his dad was locked up, the fatigue he was feeling after 24 hours of running and fighting. They had him feeling docile, almost relieved to be caught. Tears were trying to find their way out the corners of his eyes, but couldn't quite seem to make it. Yeah, I'll call you back, 
Terrell said, and flipped the phone shut. Judith rose to her feet. My grandpa used to have that phone, she said. But then he got a Blackberry when I was like, five? Where's Sean Taylor? The cop asked. Judith just smirked. What about you, lover boy? Got you at gunpoint in this basement. No body cam down here. No witnesses but this guy. He poked a thumb at Connor. And he's not about to blow any whistles. I got both your little girlfriends and dear old dad. You really want to play games with me? I got a game. It's called Guess Whose Finger This Used to Be. You want I should tell you the rules? Trent finally found his voice again. He's tied to a radiator at the Cassell house. Check it out, Terrell said to Connor. You got it. He headed for the door. Take the tunnel, meathead. Oh, Connor said. Right. Gun in hand, he disappeared into the darkness of the passageway. Now give me that backpack, kid, Terrell instructed, again drawing his sidearm. Trent sloughed it off and kicked it back to him. Is the book in here? Terrell asked, snatching it up, unzipping pockets. No. So where is it? Judith caught Trent's eye and gave her head a little shake. She wanted to keep their leverage, and maybe she was right. If they gave up everything, they were all just loose ends. Dad, Judith, Zoe, all of them. Terrell turned the backpack upside down and shook the contents to the floor, pushing through them with the toe of his shoe. Don't want to talk? he asked. It's somewhere in your room, isn't it? I used to keep cigarettes and girly magazines behind a loose panel in my closet when I was your age. You got something like that going on? Trent said nothing. Mom found him eventually. She said, These cigarettes will kill you. And she was right. I'll kill you quicker, though. Not quick, mind you, but quicker than cigarettes. He began pulling drawers from the dresser, spilling their contents all around him. When we tossed this place, we didn't know you had this little pad down here. Hadn't found the tunnel yet. He dumped the last drawer and commenced knocking archery trophies and model cars from a shelf. Exercise in the old Miranda rights, huh? That's fine. We got nothing but time here. In fact, you want the right to remain silent? You two are under arrest for impeding an investigation. Hands behind your backs. He cuffed Judith first. Trent held his breath, expecting her to make a move, knock the lanky cop down, and turn the tables on him. But she didn't. She just stood there, smirking, while he locked her wrists together. Then he cuffed Trent as well and ordered them both to sit on the floor against the wall while he ransacked the rest of the room. Ten minutes later, the bedroom now a disaster, Connor reappeared from the tunnel, assisting Sean, who alternately hopped and limped his way into the room. You, he said, pointing at Trent. Connor, do me a favor and bring me that little jerkwad. Trent felt himself lifted roughly from the ground and shoved toward Sean, who buried a fist into his stomach. He coughed and fell to the concrete floor, going fetal. That's for shooting me, he shouted. Another blow to the abdomen from Sean's good foot. And that's for shooting me again. That's enough, Terrell said. These are my prisoners. Right, Judith said. So only you get to beat on us? You find the book? Sean asked. Nah, it's not here, Terrell said. We're going to have to make them talk the fun way. Let's bring them to the boss. Sean grinned. Good idea. The whole party ascended the stairs to the garage and proceeded out into the night where a squad car was parked in the driveway. Watch your head, Terrell said, loading Trent into the back seat. 
He shoved Judith in harder, and she landed in a heap on Trent's lap. Sean's face appeared, hovering just outside the car. I told you, didn't I? I said you'd be in the back of a squad car in ten minutes. What was that, ten minutes ago? He laughed. It was like half an hour, Judith said. Whatever. He slammed the door. Judith leaned in to Trent's ear and whispered, First chance I get, I'm bailing. I'll rescue your dad. You keep these guys busy until we can find you. You can't bail out, Trent said. The inside door handles don't work in a cop car. I know. Both front doors opened. Terrell slid in behind the wheel and Sean gingerly arranged himself in the passenger seat, grunting in pain as he fastened his seatbelt. See if you can find the location of the treasure before you get wherever, Judith whispered. But whatever you do, don't give them the diary. What are you, necking back there? Terrell said. Knock it off. It ain't that kind of back seat. <laughs> necking? Judith laughed. Who says necking? The car came to life, and they headed out, away from downtown, past the park with the haunted tetherball pole, and out toward the state highway. I thought you were taking us to jail, Judith said. You're going the wrong way. This is more interesting, Sean offered. Headlights appeared in the distance, coming toward them, high beams illuminating the back seat for a moment. Trent did a double take. Judith's arms, locked behind her back a moment ago, were now in front of her, hands digging for something in her right boot. For just a second, Trent wondered if she might actually have superpowers. Then he remembered that she did, sort of. Judith was double-jointed, her secret weapon on the wrestling mat, and apparently while escaping police custody. Another car approached, and he saw her produce Chief Barton's keys. She quickly removed the handcuff key from the ring and dropped the rest back into the boot. They took a right on Shiawassee and sped up. They were now on their way out to the woods, the National Forest to their left, and miles of cornfield to the right. In the dim light of the dashboard, Trent saw Judith, now free of the handcuff, slide them into her boot as well. She removed the decorative wing from her left arm while saying, You two idiots really think you can hold me back here with nothing but cuffs and a metal grate? Terrell laughed. Yeah, I think we can. Then you don't know who I am. You're that Morgan kid. You jumped Jay Fisher last week. He's been itching for a rematch, by the way. Oh, and I threw your father in the drunk tank last week. Whole family full of losers and jailbirds. Wrong, she said. I'm Angelus. Judith dropped the porcelain wing to the floor of the car and stomped it with her heel, crushing it into a dozen pieces. What are you doing back there? Terrell said. You don't want me to stop this car, trust me. Go ahead, Judith taunted. Your funeral. Don't test me, kid. She scoffed. You're all talk. Tango and cash? Yeah, right. You make Barney Fife look like that guy from Training Day. That's so? Judith grabbed the cage, separating them from the front of the car, and rattled it hard. Prove me wrong. Terrell wheeled and gawked. How did you... The car began to slow. That's it. You're in trouble now. Trent felt the handcuff key pressed into his palm and heard Judith whisper, Close your eyes, Trent. Tight. She scooped a handful of broken white wing from the floor and reared back. Trent squeezed his eyes shut and heard the window explode right next to his head, then felt the cool air filling the back seat. Judith scrambled across his lap and launched herself out of the car, rolling as she landed. 
Terrell slammed on the brakes, and the tires squealed on the wet pavement. They fishtailed and recovered, coming to a stop. The cop threw his door open and took three steps out into the road, drawing his gun. But Judith was gone, disappeared into the woods beyond. He clicked on the mounted searchlight and directed it toward the trees, but there was no sign of her. Stay with Marsh, Sean said. I'll bring her back, in pieces if I have to. Terrell slid back into the car. Yeah, right. With that foot? Well, then you go and I'll stay. We can't just leave her behind. Forget it, Terrell said, shifting back into drive. She's got no idea where we're headed, and she's got no place to go. Besides, she's a kid, alone, in the woods, in the dark. She's got no car, and I've got her phone. And even if she makes it back to town, who's she going to go to? The cops? He flipped on the flashing lights and punched the gas. You stay where you are, kid, he threw over his shoulder. You try anything like that, I'll gut your old man. I promise. Judith darted into the woods, moving as fast as she could for a couple minutes, swinging around tree trunks, ducking under limbs, before coming across a thick stand of white pines. Crawling down beneath the branches of the largest one, she pulled Barton's cell phone from her boot and powered it up. Using the backlight from the screen to illuminate the ground of this natural tent, she began searching for ammunition. The steel balls in her utility belt were preferable to stones, of course, more accurate from a distance, but she'd trained with both. Clawing through the dirt with her fingernails, she found just what she was looking for. A smooth, flat stone, about two inches long. Then another, and another. Five of them, all told, like God had put them here just for her. She still had her sling, rolled up in her other boot, and the darkness covering her escape. Now she needed transportation. Barton's phone was at the home screen now. No passcode needed. Another bit of providence. Her first instinct was to call Jason, who was waiting in that stupid van with the iron horse. But he didn't have a phone. Grounded. How stupid. In hindsight, they should have left Trent's phone with him. Oh well, she'd improvise. Opening the contacts screen, her eyes fell on number two. Danny. She grinned and began composing a text. Bring the car to the entrance of H.M. National Forest, a couple miles west of Coit Road. Now. A reply came almost immediately. Three question marks, followed by, I'm with the guys at Toppet. She hit reply and wrote, I said now, just you. No excuses, no delays. Clinch. A podcast of fiction and not fiction is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2018, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2018, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>